In our latest episode of Julius Bear's True Connections podcast, Alan Hooks, head of private clients in the UK, speaks with Nicola Mitchell. Nicola is the CEO and founder of Life Scientific and recent winner of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Ireland Award and joins Alan to speak about her journey as an entrepreneur, the importance of a strong network and what the future holds for Life Scientific. Nicola, really delighted for you to be able to join us today and thanks for your time. I think most importantly, many congratulations on being named EY Entrepreneur of the Year in Ireland. You must be massively proud, I imagine. Well, I'm really pleased. Thank you, Ellen. Yeah, the award really isn't about winning. It shouldn't be about winning. And every entrant and finalist, all they want to do really is win. I'm sure of it. So it's a really tough award and process. I found it so anyway, and I'm glad it's all over, but worth the effort. People who are crawling out of the woodwork, people from my childhood days. And so it's been really, really wonderfully rich, a really rewarding experience. And of course, being judged by the panel, you know, 15 of our most successful business people in Ireland was not for the faint hearted. You know, we thought being judged was over, you know, but <laughs> it was it was wonderful. It was actually it was probably a highlight for me. That session with the judges really enjoyed that. Yeah. And Nicola, just before we come back to the award a little bit later, but just in terms of your background and how you came about to set up Life Scientific, I think our listeners would be really interested to hear a little bit about your backstory and how you were drawn towards your particular industry. Yeah, it certainly found me. I didn't put my hand up and cry out, you know, agrochemicals, agrochemicals. I certainly didn't do that. And, you know, sometimes the best things find you. I think branding and marketing in Ireland as a country, a nation of manufacturing pharmaceuticals at that time, you know, we were always led to believe that the multinationals were the holy grail and this is where you should be destined to things. So that conditioning has stayed with me because from the get-go, I wanted to build a multinational rather. And, you know, you have to accept the conditioning might have been that I mightn't been the one to rise through the ranks of a multinational. I don't know, having not tried, and I'm sure it's not true because I haven't really experienced any glass ceilings. But again, I can only speak from my own experience and what I thought to do. And it was largely at the sort of direction of my father was, and in an Irish context, was the best way for you to have control over your own destiny and to really realize any and all your ambitions is to set up your own business one day. You know, that was his message right from the get-go. And that would have been a product of Ireland at the time where, you know, our parents really sacrificed themselves and their dreams for us in terms of getting us well-educated, sending us to France, for example, in my case, at an early age to learn French because of the single market. So they really, you know, without much means, the education was so very important. And for them, it was the way and the key to really unlock a wonderful future and they were certainly proven right but yeah so I wasn't very interesting I don't think and I know so <laughs> I didn't start out with any honours <laughs> and I talk about hard work an awful lot and I actually believe that hard work and everybody becomes clever and everybody becomes intelligent and everybody becomes talented you know I really believe that and I hope I can stand for that and somewhere some people here think that's kind of a less glamorous or lower rent sort a characteristic but to me I think that must give hope to every single one of us that we will all find our note and we will all find and realise all the dreams that we have and when you look back and you're a little girl and you must remember the sort of little girl I was was very much a one that had no confidence had no expectations of me a very loving family and I would have said two very different ways influential parents <laughs> and I just was a blank canvas for them both of them and I just listened absorbed learned and you know it was very 
very late until I realised I actually had my own ideas and things. You know, I really didn't take ownership for far too long, as it were, but I did learn a lot along the way. And yeah, I was very fortunate along the way as people, you know, what I think every entrepreneur will tell you that, you know, if you think you have to do this alone, you can't and you certainly don't. And the amount of people, if what you're doing, it's not what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. And once you're doing it for the right reasons, people just come out of the woodwork to help you. It's just incredible. There's such a goodwill around there. And I could list as long as my arm the number of people that helped me make each of the next steps. Because if you look back, it was a little ambitious target because we were setting up without a role model really in Ireland. We were rank outsiders, but we wanted to build, in my terminology, a multinational, but really what it is, a Dyson equivalent, I think. Yeah. And Nicola, you've spoken a lot before about hard work and the determination. And it's interesting to hear you speak so passionately about your own support network. And I'm guessing in terms of your journey along the way, which is by no means over, and I'm sure you'll continue to grow that business. How much have you relied on your own sort of business networks in Ireland, elsewhere as well to help you in terms of your career to date? So in the beginning, you know, my father was a chemist. I did chemistry. I was going to do law or chemistry, ended up doing chemistry. And in the end, my career has been a mixture of both law and chemistry. It's interesting how you hone in on the right areas from the get-go. I'm sure if you follow and trust your instincts. But So he had a network and my first business mentor was a man called Billy O'Neill. He was the CEO of Dunlops and Cork. And he was just wonderful. He just did the business plan with me you know he tried to understand what it was I was trying to do which was quite unique at the time and difficult to explain but it was around integration they have names for it now integrated R&D and things like that but it was about maybe simplifying all the steps and just looking at a goal and the goal is to get the license and then working and building a business around that and he was there and that was dad's network and again my first little lab in the corner of the biochemistry department in UCD when I came to Dublin was dad's best friend one of I mean this guy had many best friends but he was the one everybody wanted to be best friends with this professor Jerry Harrington and he gave me a place in his lab on the campus of UCD introduced me to Pat Frayne which was he was the director of the campus innovation centre so on UCD so coming from Cork and knowing nobody in Dublin I had a real soft landing let's put it that way so then because the business that I'm in it's agrochemicals it's very much a global one from the get-go and even I had worked for 10 years in what started to be a trading company and was pivoting at this stage to building science I suppose you could say so I had worked in that company in Ireland in Dublin for 10 years and again that job oriented towards Europe not at all towards Ireland really and so we were always on planes I was recruited to coincide with the introduction of statutory legislation for the licensing of agrochemicals and so those 10 years we were building labs it was from a kind of commercial company into trying to find our way through this new discipline of regulation you know so and it was very much European regulation and being pioneered you know so we were kind of finding our way and so it was always oriented towards Europe so my network and then you know when I started Life Scientific in 95 we set up for 20 well 15 20 years we're offering the capability as a service before we pivoted the business to developing our own products but we were offering as a service so all our clients were global they were multinationals they were also smaller companies all over the world China, South Africa we exhibited in China so our network in terms of the question you're asking was very much always a kind of industry one and it was very much it's a small industry people know each other and they stay close all the way through so it has wonderful advantages in that respect you know who you're dealing with often yeah you said something there Nicola which a lot of entrepreneurs that we speak to say and you talk about finding your way a little bit and I'm really interested in the growth of life scientific in terms of its international expansion as you say the big customer base is is certainly global 
And I know many of those in our entrepreneur network especially will be thinking about their international expansion. You will have had experience from a pretty early age of France, etc. But how did you go about it? Did you actively have a plan for growth internationally for the business? Yeah, our business was from the get-go export, you know, and that came from the network. So as I said, we did hockey stick growth once we pivoted the business in 2012. We had our first product and went from 2 million to 60 million. And we're on track for considerable growth this year, the year we're in. And we expect to be able to roll out the existing business model fairly organically with wonderful support from the Bank of Ireland, who've been with us from the beginning. But we're looking to be 250 million by 2025. And we're currently doing submissions in North and South America. So these are the regulatory submissions. And then you know, to be able to really succeed and you need the right partners, the right local partners. And in our case, their first good local partner, one was a big distributor in the UK, which was wonderful. It allowed us, you know, from nothing, have three million business, a really, really wonderful opportunity in quite a consolidated industries and distribution is quite consolidated in certainly these markets. But in France, we did a deal with Invivo, which is access to 60% of the French market, which at one time was third in the world. You know, it's changed now, obviously, but it was a really important and big market. And I sold half of the business, not as an exit, but just to be able to scale in return for access to the French market. Today, the French market is less than half of our business and our job is very much to use the French model to illustrate to the world how the model works. And the model is very much a one of partnership. So what we're doing is we're linking with our technology and it is disrupting technology. We've redefined the way generic agrochemicals are licensed and developed in the world. And so we link that. It's the equivalent, the way I call it, it's like 3D printing or it's a really high through platform that allows us to develop in parallel, taking closer shots to target. And then we come out with what I call, we have seeds and we see which ones grow. We don't have to continue all our pipeline. And But it's such a complex world. Here we have this platform. We connect in with the right local partner and we really exceed what it is they're looking for. And in our case, we're offering the French farmers, for example, multinational quality for less. What we're doing is in what is largely an oligopoly of three big companies, and even if lots of and most of their molecules are off patent, we haven't seen the patent cliff like you see in pharma. So what you've seen is that the big multinationals, Bayer, Syngenta, BSF, have held on to 75% market share. And that's through secondary barriers. And we've made it a living, our living, of navigating and circumnavigating and bypassing and invalidating some of those secondary barriers and being the voice for competition versus their voice of innovation and being a part that sees that the balance is correct between competition and innovation. Yeah, so it's the right partner. If you were to ask, in our industry, certainly, if you can access the right partner, we have a very important partner in Paraguay, for example. Um, and yeah, so it's different, obviously, in every market. Were you nervous, Nicola, in you know, looking back in 2015 in terms of bringing in a pretty sizable business partner to a firm which you'd founded and been your brainchild, if you like. Was that something that was an area of trepidation for you in terms of bringing in somebody with that scale to your business? Yeah, and I've learned a lot. And would I do it again? I absolutely would. I never wanted to be Miss 100%. I want to be big. I want to be part of something really, really big. And I have huge ambition to roll out the vision. I'm not letting go of that. And, you know, that's very much linked in with our unique R&D capability. And that's intangible, let's put it that way. So for sure, I didn't want to be Miss 100% of something small. 
And I imagine I'll end up being 15% of a multinational that espouses all the values that we've built on. And I think what we've created here is a culture that contrasts quite significantly with the culture of R&D in big multinational firms, which seems to be more structured and template driven and SOPs and quite tackled the creative process. So I think our culture, which is entrepreneurship, it is freedom to operate, it is let's fail, you know, freedom to fail, all of those things can be a very fertile feeding ground for lots of ideas on which we can build out the company. And I think it's really valuable. And that's the disruptors is the culture that will really allow us to take some of these opportunities that are coming ahead of us. But life is a compromise. You know, real life is a compromise. And in actual fact, the partner is very different from a corporate. It's a co-op, you know, and every farmer, it's 200,000 of them, have a vote. And, you know, with cooperatives, they are political and there are factions. I'm sure people will appreciate those things. And we're dealing and our directors are at the corporate level. But it's a very different beast, you know, and in many ways, a lot of the values are family values and you know, collaboration and all of those things work very well and fit very well. There is cultural fit between the two partners that will allow us together create real value and wonderful value. Do you see yourself as a disruptor, Nicola? Is that how you think? Yeah, because we've always rattled the cage because, you see, there is a dogma because the multinationals are so big, there's 6,000 Syngenta scientists, you know, and they're more powerful even than the regulatory authorities and countries, you know. And so a lot of the rules are their rules. You know, we're living with their thinking and we've never accepted that. We've always opted to test, see for ourselves and uh, not challenge for challenge's sake, but to really search for the truth and stand out for that and build a business on that. And the truth is that the world needs competition and there's a huge, even if our voice is small, there's a huge amount of support that will, yeah, certainly from farmers, but from the wider community and from regulatory authorities and policymakers, they, all of them want competition to balance and check that the very powerful innovators. Yeah. And I guess partly for your business, Nicola, key will be speed to market in terms of you know, delivery of your various products in multiple locations. I can't help but ask you about the COVID trials that have been going on recently. And what struck me is just the sheer speed at which trials and testing have been able to take place and potentially approvals from regulators have been accelerated by a number of years. Do you see that sort of thinking transcending across to your industry? Well, we think we've originated that thinking. And, you know, you hear that what they're doing for the first time in pharma. And, you know, these are big organizations and they're very regulated. Same for us. So change, they have huge strengths, but equally change takes time and there's legacy and there's culture and all of those things that hold back. So, and culture, as we know, eats strategy for breakfast. So but what they've done with the vaccines is they've built the manufacturing in parallel with the research and the development and the licensing. And it's exactly what we're doing here because from our world, time is more expensive than money. And we know that, you know, we know money and time are linked. <laughs> and we've always connected in with that. And everything we've done is to try and take out complexity to make it simple, to make it fast. And we work with regulators, which are often black holes. We can't access them. We don't understand how they think. So we spent years doing the impossible on the outside, which one example being we've reverse engineered the equivalent of the Coca-Cola recipes. That's not easy to do, but all with a view to having an identical or a clone of what's already been approved and licensed to facilitate the decision making in that big black hole that is the regulatory authority so yeah it's all about speed everything we do it's about speed and that's often linked to simplicity and that's often not easy to do until you've done it <laughs> but it is, that's the game yeah exactly Nicola I've heard you speak before very passionately about your experience with Stanford Business School in the US and 
love to hear your take on your experience there and anything that might have surprised you when you've been involved in sort of business for growth programs, etc. What did you learn from that experience that you just didn't expect to learn at the outset? Yeah, that's an easy one. There were so many surprises and not least I have to commend Enterprise Ireland who went around the world looking for the best and customised programme to kind of address the needs that so Irish CEOs without enough ambition or lacking in ambition, you know, and I think the first thing Stanford will teach you is think big from the get-go. So they tell you, don't go near it unless the opportunity is 100 million and then that you can be number one or two in that market, so 50 million. So your starting goal is 50 million and it's just a wonderful and very clear too about positioning yourself. You know, they do talk about a second kind of luck, which is that you are lucky because the wave comes, but you've actively positioned yourself so that you can ride that wave, you know, the words. So it's a, for me, when I saw this program and Stanford just wheeled out their top brass you know they really did it was just wonderful to see lots and lots of males you know it was interesting in that respect it surprised me in that way the thinking might have been the branding of Stanford is so phenomenally out of this world and for me maybe that image was maybe a little bit lopsided I could say in that regard so you think you go to Stanford to learn about strategy you know and again I have to say same with Fordham where I did an MBA the Americans can really, really communicate. They're just, it's theatre. And it's just, you know, we were on the edge of our seats every single day. And they had, you know, the guys whose case studies we were studying, they had the guys in, you know, to present their own company stories. And it was just so riveting. It was absolutely the most wonderful experience I've ever had in my life. I'm for sure of that. But you think that they're going to teach you about strategy or, you know, all this thing. But the big, big take home for me was, which surprised me, was their emphasis on culture engaging people, you know, and we're doing shared leadership, servant leadership. We're doing the importance of giving direction, the importance of how to give feedback. And, you know, a personal sin of mine was always to kind of celebrate the positives without really addressing some negative behaviours. And we're really working as a team to be able to preserve our culture and to evolve our culture. We really are focusing on behaviours. And all of this is coming from Stanford. And we're even, the work we're doing today comes from the coach, my business coach from Stanford, Vicky Hawthorne. She's 72 and she'd been working with CEOs all her life and I'm her first female CEO so she wanted that box ticked before (laughs) but she'd been working with really C-suite all her life all over the world and you know she talks then about partnerships and how it's again it's all the people think that you know if you treat your suppliers like they're gold they will give back more and more it's not rocket science this stuff but if you really really appreciate your suppliers and if you really try to understand what it is they're trying to achieve and if you work together so that there's win-wins and you just you know exceed them so it's not just the customer it's all your stakeholders and you can really unleash huge huge goodwill that really will make the difference you know from being just mediocre to being truly truly wonderful you know and great and the magic all starts to come yeah and are you still in touch with much of the alumni at Stanford? Some of them, yeah. One of them lives across the road from me. And so there were 20 in our class at that stage, all of whom except for five were IT. So it was all IT uh, software kind of companies, whereas we were life sciences. So all of those have been wishing me well in the last recent while. So yeah, we're definitely in touch with those. We formed really wonderful bonds there. We had such fun there. And, you know, it was, yeah, real pleasure for all of us. I know. Yeah, it was just such an informative time for us. And as I said, yeah, and they teach you so much. And I think, yeah, these things aren't difficult. It's just knowing what to do. <laughs> and, you know, you can, if you can go to Stanford and learn it's worth its weight in gold, it's just a no-brainer, isn't it? It just takes out a lot of the pain. 
Yeah. Nicola, you're only one of two females to win the Irish EY Entrepreneur of the Year award. What do you think some of the judges saw in you that sort of swung the decision in your favour? How do you see it from your point of view? Yeah, when you look at all the winners, it's interesting that the emphasis on the person, even if I think there are business and the business model and the numbers and what we've done, you know, the business has achieved huge things. I think probably they recognize that, again, we've built up a culture in the organization that provides for success that they appreciated and especially the respect, you know, for people. And yeah, so it's not me for sure. It's not me. It never is. But it certainly is about some of the values that I would espouse to. And I hear echoes of that in the other winners as well. You know, it's just this award isn't as simple as he who makes most money wins, you know. But for me, the business, if that doesn't part work, you're disqualified straight off. But it's still an incredibly prodigious award, Nicola. Is it something that you and your team had sort of focused on? Is something you'd wanted to achieve as a business? Have you set your mind on it? Yeah, I had. It was always my dream. It really was the dream because it's such a hugely prestigious award and it is the award for someone like me to win. I don't, there's not another award I would like to win more or respect more. And it really will help our brand. It will help us promote us to the best people that we want to attract to support this big globally headquartered Irish sort of technology company. And in agriculture, Culture, which again is something. So we're looking to try and maybe rebrand or even brand something that hasn't really been celebrated in the same way as Stockholm companies or pharma companies in Ireland before. So it's hugely important in that sense. And with our partners, our banks and our just credibility generally and our partners in China, just it might be the thing to help us open a door, you know, and it is a badge of honour for sure. Yeah. And Nicola, when you've had a chance to breathe after all of the many congratulations and all of the phone calls and messages you're receiving, what's the plans for the business going forward? What are you next sort of looking towards? Well, we're really, really, really busy scaling. So we're recruiting quite a lot. And we, again, as I said to you, we're just to replicate, roll out the business model. There is an opportunity. We've created opportunity through our court cases and things like that. So we really need to take and avail of those opportunities while they're here. As they say, opportunities come to pass. So we're very focused on that. And we've been making, again, the submissions into North and South America and Eastern Europe. There are big new markets. And we're actually, again, building the capability and scaling our platforms to be able to build out the portfolio even faster. So it sounds like continuing to do what you've been doing. Yeah, that's as interesting or not as it is. Yeah, for me, it's very interesting because the more we can do, it's recurring, but we're always edging up. We're building as we repeat and it's successful. So we shouldn't lose the focus at this point. It's really, really important that we keep the head down and we don't lose sight of the goal. We have to be very disciplined in that regard. Yeah. Nicola, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you for your time. Many congratulations again on the award. Richly deserved and I know lots of people have been wishing you well. So that's great to hear and we look forward to hearing from you again and speaking to you in due course. Would love that. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this edition of Julius Bear's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn and at juliusbear.com. Mm-hmm.